you know anything about Ephesus? Seaport town, get off the boat, a huge colonnade, very wide, almost two football fields wide, and every 25 feet, a 75-foot marble column. Going from the port all the way to the highest point, the Temple of Diana, the goddess of love, often called Artemis. And it's to that city where Paul has spent three years founding churches. He writes about the Lord Jesus Christ. Three chapters all about what God has done for us in Christ. The other three chapters, therefore, how should we as Christians then live? And so we're looking today at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22 down through 33, what he has to say about marriage. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The man was still in his mother's womb when his father died. His dad was 36 years old. He never knew him. At age seven, he went to work selling newspapers to support his family. At age 10, he went backstage at a small theater production, and when he got backstage, he thought to himself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. His mother would later say his destiny caught up with him early in his life. At age 14, he was a veteran performer, the fourth son of Ida May and Joseph. When he died at age 84, Red Skelton left an amazing body of work. Literally scores of protégés. He was the consummate clean comedian. And he dedicated himself to making people laugh. And he did a great job of it. Now it's said that... Um, Often the crucible for comedic humor is tragedy. And if that's true, it was certainly true in Red Skelton's life. His dad died before he met him. 
He had a 10-year-old son who died mysteriously. He was married three times. And two out of three times, his wife left him for another love. Perhaps it was all those broken relationships that caused him to be an expert on marriage. Recently, a man sent me Red Skelton's advice and recipe for a perfect marriage, and I thought I'd tell you a few. First of all, he says, every week, my wife and I go out to a nice restaurant. We have a good beverage and some good food and companionship. She goes on Tuesdays. I go on Fridays. <laughs> he said, I asked my wife what she wanted for her anniversary. She said, I want to go to somewhere I haven't been for a long time. I said, how about the kitchen? <laughs> now, maybe that's caused some problems for him. He, he knew when he married her that uh, he was marrying Mrs. Wright, but then he said, I didn't know her first name was always. <laughs> He said, that's okay, I haven't talked to her in 18 months. I hate to interrupt her. <laughs> but then Red said, I, uh, I have to admit, often I'm the cause of the problem. The other day she came into the room and said, what's on TV? And I said, dust. <laughs> okay, that's all. I could keep going. <laughs> Lest you think I'm degrading marriage, uh, I'm not. But after all, it was Red Skelton who said marriage is the number one cause of divorce. <laughs> the Orthodox Westminster wedding service begins this way. Marriage is instituted by God. It is regulated by his commandments. It is blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ who said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the new t no longer will they be two but one flesh. Now, those words aren't original with Jesus. His father had canonized them in the Torah thousands of years earlier. And yet, on several occasions, those words verbatim are quoted in the New Testament as foundational to Christian marriage. And yet today, Christian marriage, marriage of any type, is under assault outside of the church and also inside the church. This week I read a Roman Catholic theologian by the name of Daniel McGuire of Marquette University. He writes this, all religions give marriage a very high place. But listen to how he defines marriage. Marriage is a unique and special form of committed friendship between two sexually attracted persons. Somebody said, according to that definition, I've been married a thousand times. <laughs> You say, how could a professor of theology come up with that definition of marriage? And the answer is easy. Because when it comes to marriage, the Bible is often used to reinforce bias rather than to promote understanding. And it happens on both sides of the theological continuum. You know what a chauvinist becomes when he becomes a Christian? A chauvinistic Christian. <laughs> Until the Holy Spirit begins to do his work in that guy's life, he will hold on to his bias. You know the re majority report in evangelical Christendom regarding marriage? It is this. The man is to rule over the woman. 
And whenever I hear that, and whenever I see that, I often think of a woman I knew years ago who held an advanced degree in French. She was a professor at a local university. She had a gift for music and sculpture. She was one of the brightest, most competent, gifted people I've ever known in my life. In time, she met a man who had a Bible school degree. He was from an inner city background. He, had a, he was as uncultured as she was cultured. When the Lord saved him, he saved him out of a lot of stuff. And yet he really did save him. He became a spiritual sponge. He couldn't get enough of the scriptures and spiritual truth. So after a year or so, they got married. They were the oddest of couples. You know what I saw after a couple of weeks? I saw her begin to change. She went from a woman who was warm and assertive to a woman who began to be sort of distant. She began to take a back seat to his large and in charge persona. I remember one time Sunday night he was preaching on marriage. And he talked about her. He said, you know, over the past few months since we've been married, I've had to train her according to biblical standards. Every time I would be driving and she'd be in the passenger seat and we would come to a, a stop sign or something and I was going a little fast, she'd always tense up and say, eek! And finally I had to tell her to be submissive to me is to be totally quiet. You need to shut up when I'm driving. And all around me, I watched heads nod. Yeah. Until one week later, when he ran a stop sign and totaled his car, as the final fragments of shattered glass landed on his lap, he said to her, Why didn't you tell me there was a stop sign there? And she said, Because you taught me submission means to keep my mouth shut. And I thought, Touche! Yeah, touche. <laughs> he's my plant right over here. His name's Reed, and he's got good timing. You know, of all of the clubs, all of the biblical clubs that are used to promote macho marriage, I think there's no text that's used more frequently than the one we've just read. Ephesians chapter 5. And yet, when you dig into this text, you see what God gives us there is an explanation and an exposition of marriage that's exactly the opposite. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the meaning of marriage. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. In Paul's day, there was in Asia Minor a code of household conduct that had been in existence for 400 years. It was developed by a man named Aristotle, and he said that in every human relationship within the household, that is master-slave, that is husband-wife, that is child-parent, the man is in charge. The man rules. 
The Greeks believed it. The Romans believed it. They believed that man's rule was paramount in society. And yet, notice what Paul says in verse 1 and 21. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, according to Paul, it's not man's rule that is paramount. It is God's rule in Christ. And notice the location of these words. It's in the second part of his letter. It's in the imperative section. He spends three chapters talking about all that Christ has done for us. And so Paul, when he defines marriage, does not define it as a two-way relationship, but rather a three-way relationship with Christ as the ruler of both the man and the woman. Second, notice the mystery of marriage. This mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of marriage. Now, in Paul's day and in his culture, the mystery wasn't as great as it is in our day. It's actually much less. At age 12, a girl in Hebrew society would be already arranged for marriage. In that culture, there were only uh, two decision makers, the father of the girl and the father of the boy. But even in that culture, there was a mystery. When a baby was born in Israel, who could ever know at that point whether he or she would be married? When a baby's born, who could ever know who that child's spouse would be? It was a mystery that was to be revealed later. Now, Paul is big on mystery. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God to make the Word of God known fully. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to the saints, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I tell you a mystery. Not all will sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. But here, when he talks about mystery, he's talking about a mystery even more profound than those mysteries. What is that mystery? That Christian marriage is a picture, a portrait, a metaphor of our redemption in Christ. You say, what's that mean? That means, according to Paul, the secret of successful marriage is not found in focusing on your love for your spouse, but focusing on the Savior's love of you both. Third, notice the message. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will no longer, or two will become one flesh. Now, Paul, again, is quoting the words of Genesis 2, just like Jesus. And the question I ask is why? 
Why is it that every time in the New Testament when Jesus or Paul speak of marriage, they quote Genesis chapter 2? And the answer is because the creation of man was the crowning achievement of God in his creation. Of all that God created, none represented God better than the man. He's created in his image with a mind to reason, a will to choose, a spirit that longs for fellowship. He was created to glorify God, and yet when God created him, he made him incomplete. You say, where do you get that? Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper suitable or fit for him. You know what the Hebrew says? He says, I will make for him a help that is opposite him. Now think about that. When God creates man, he makes him needy. When God creates woman out of man, he makes her needy. He creates them with a corresponding need. To be made whole. You get that? Now imagine a Jew like Paul saying that. When all around him in the Roman culture, the Greek culture, the Hebrew culture, they believe the opposite. You know what the Greeks used to say? Man is complete in himself. You know what the Romans said? No man can have any friend but one himself. You know what the Jews used to pray? Oh Lord, thank me that you have not made thank you that you've not made me a gentile, a slave or a woman. Yet Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 in Christ there is no male or female, Jew or gentile, slave or free. You see, when Paul thinks of the union between a man and a woman, he goes where Jesus goes. He sees women as Jesus saw them. Not as a slave, but as a partner. Because that's the way he created them. Think of it. He formed us out of the same substance, dust. He makes us incomplete. He forms us for a relationship with another who alone can satisfy us, and that's him. And if he gives us the privilege of being married, it's so that we might see in ourselves the full extent of our incompleteness. But I want you to notice, there is no cleaving there is no the develop, development of a bond without first a leaving or a breaking. We see that in the creation. There's no creation of Eve without Adam being broken. We see that in the incarnation. There's no bonding to the Lord unless Jesus leaves heaven and cleaves unto his bride. Right before he speaks of the mystery, he speaks of leaving and cleaving. 
because he knows that in order for man and woman to achieve a union with God and with each other, there must be a laying down of their rights, a laying down of themselves. There must be a breaking of one's will. You say, where did he get that? He got it at the cross. And fourth and finally, notice the model. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now let me ask you something. How did Jesus love his bride, the church? Paul tells us a few ways in this text. Verse 25, he says, Jesus gave up, his, gave up himself for his bride. Meaning what? Meaning he submitted his will to the will of his father for the sake of the bride. In verse 27, he says, he presented her to himself as a radiant bride. Now think of that. He presented the church, you and me, to himself as a radiant bride. I've got a friend who has a, a sermon about the bride of Christ. You know his first point? She's ugly. I mean, the bride of Christ is pretty ugly. And yet Paul says he sees her without spot or blemish. Right now, he sees her complete. He sees you complete, even though you're full of sin. 28 years ago, when Barb and I were married, her uncle was one of two ministers. It took two ministers to marry us. And I'll never forget, he spoke from 1 Corinthians 13. He said he had 14 points, and one of the, my groomsmen was very sick, and he got sicker when he heard that. 14 points. I do remember one thing he said. He said, Doug, I don't know what kind of cook Barbara is. But if you tell her she's a very good cook, she'll become one. You know, that's not Hallmark. That's Jesus. He looks beyond our faults. He sees us as a finished work. And Paul says, in effect, that every Christian husband would do well to see his wife that way. Then in verse 28, he says, in the same way a husband loves his own body, a husband ought to love his wife. I mean, is there any greater bond than a man and his body? He's arguably the greatest athlete Pittsburgh's ever known. If you ever had the chance to see him on the baseball field, you knew that he could do things with his body that were almost superhuman. And yet when Myron Cope went to Puerto Rico to interview Roberto Clemente, he said, I came in the house, and I said, Roberto, how are you? And for the next 20 minutes, he started talking about his aches and pains. All he could talk about was his body. And all I said to him was, how are you doing? Now think about everything Jesus has done for his body. Why did he do it? Why does Jesus do all that he does for us? You know the answer? 
because he sees us as part of himself. He loves us as his own body. And Paul says that's how every married man and married woman ought to see each other. Not as their own, but as belonging to each other. I'll never forget, years ago, I went up to Cleveland to see a friend to play golf. <laughs> when I got to the place we were meeting, he said, listen, why don't you park your car, put your clubs in my, my car, and we'll go play. And so I said, great. So as we were driving along, he said to me, I should tell you before we go too far, um, after we play golf, we're going to meet a, a woman for dinner, and, and I, I've been dating her. In fact, I think I'm going to marry her, and I about fell off my chair. I never thought I'd hear the M word out of him. And then he continued. He said, you know something, Doug? We think God brought us together. And I really felt like falling off my chair, because, or my seat, because Mike's not a believer. He never talks about God. I never heard him use the G word. <laughs> and I said to him, really? Why? He said, why what? I said, why do you think God brought you together? If God brought you together, why do you think he did? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You said you think God brought you together. Why do you think he did that? If he did it, why did he do it? He said, I don't know. Do you know? I said, yes. But I'm not telling you. <laughs> so we play golf, go to dinner. She comes into the restaurant. The first thing he said, ask her the question. I said, what question? The one you asked me. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you know, you know, you know how we, we feel like God brought us together? And so to ask her. I said, well, yeah, he's telling me that you guys are probably going to get married and you feel like God brought you together. And I said to him, why? She said, why what? I said, well, why? Why would God have done that if he did it? She said, I don't know. Do you know? My friend said, yeah, he knows, but he won't tell us. <laughs> and I said, look at me. If God brought you together, he did it for one reason. Because there's only one reason God does anything. And that is so that together you can bring him more glory than you can if you remain single. You know something? If you're married, it's not about you. In Christian marriage, there's no room for chauvinism. There's no room for selfish rights. There's no room for Aristotelian duties. There's no room for promotion of the man or the woman. You know why? Because it's all about him. Now let me ask you something. If you're married, do you think you need to do a little reinterpretation of it? Think about that. Amen. Amen. 